3: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. In recognition of the upcoming Academy Awards ceremony, we offer you a special week of conversations from our archives with guests who have actually won an Oscar and one guest who was a current Oscar nominee. We begin with Barbara Streisand. There really are no words to describe the talent, the career, the woman that is Barbara Streisand. Streisand burst on the scene in 1964 with Funny Girl on Broadway. Right when it felt like the suburbs and McCarthyism might go on forever, the Beatles show up on The Ed Sullivan Show, and on Broadway along comes this phenomenon, this totally new, unusually gorgeous, nakedly ambitious Jewish girl from Brooklyn in clothes so wildly bright, they'd blow out your new color TV. She kept her name. She kept her nose. She kept that accent. She could not be more different from what WASP culture told women they should be.
2: New York is just full of unusual and interesting girls who are starting out in show business, but few of them have the style as early as this young lady. She's 19 years old. Her name is Barbara Streisand.
3: And then she gets on stage. She's grounded, she's powerful, and she's got the greatest voice America has ever heard. Over the following years, we also learn she's a great actress. Here she is trying to win Redford's love in The Way We
4: Were. Sure I make waves. I mean, you have to, and I'll keep making them until you're every wonderful thing you should be and will be. You'll never find anyone as good for you as I am to believe in you as much as I do or love you as much. I know that. Well, then why?
3: Streisand develops a reputation for being difficult and for being a bit of a recluse. She gets married, divorced, has a kid, but all the while she just keeps getting better and more famous until she's this unique character in American culture, a megastar on her own terms. Since we first met in 1990, we become friends. We talked at her home in Southern
2: California.
4: By the way, Stella, do me a favor. Take the clock uh-huh. and make sure it works like it has ba- needs batteries or wound or. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much.
3: You walk around the house and you have a. You just, you're just An making eye lists. That just goes, you're making lists.
4: How is this not taken care of? You see, to work for somebody like you or me, you have to understand the artist's temperament. People don't see that the time is wrong?
3: Well, I wasn't going to start with this. No, but but I'll ask good. you. But I'll ask you. <laughs> because that instinctive eye for detail and just thinking all the time about I want this, I want this, I want this, is that what naturally propelled you into directing films?
4: Yes, that and also it was something that happened during the way we were. Where two scenes were cut out that were intrinsic to the value of the story. And it made me so crazy that they couldn't see that. That propelled it, you into it. That propelled me into it. I, I couldn't understand it. And it's hard to quarrel with a, you know, a hit movie. I don't know if it was a hit at the time, tell you the truth. It's grown to Let's be. Let's say a hit. it was. <laughs> <laughs> I
3: don't know. Warren Beatty said to me once, he said, until you take ultimate responsibility and you're willing to direct the movie, you're going to be constantly frustrated. He said, you must consider that if you don't have
4: a... It was so delicious. And it's like, you know, when you finally have the power to control your work, you you get very humble in a sense. It's like, I wanted to give power away to other people as well. You know, I would say to my stand-in, You run that course uh, with the cameraman. This is the shot, but I want you to be able to tell me where to stand. In other words, it's a feeling of such gratitude where you, you never have to raise your voice because everybody's finally listening. You don't have to get angry about anything.
3: They weren't listening before? Sometimes.
4: Well, sometimes when I would say things as just an actress, like this is what I'm telling you, this story, right. the way we were, it went um, on deaf ears. You know, they didn't agree with me, whatever. But when you see something so clearly um, that's wrong to me or what could be right. Or... See, I had such a great time directing Yentl because I did it in England and in Czechoslovakia. In England, they're not afraid of women, powerful women, strong women, because they had a queen, they have a queen, and at the time they had the prime minister, who was Margaret Thatcher. So I was shocked at the respect that I had as a first-time director. Couldn't believe it. Um, and the, the crew was so kind, and just it was the most... Wonderful experience, I must say. And even the um, the Czechoslovakian government was wonderful to me because I needed Jews to be in the synagogue and pray and so forth. And, <laughs> you know, it was during communist times. And they went to the Jewish community, thank God, and had them come so I didn't have to teach them how to be Jewish, you know, how to... Pray. They get
3: you some real Jews. Uh, real Jews. Yeah, it wasn't Italians dressed as Jews, <laughs> <laughs> like in New York, <laughs> oh,
4: where they have to say, "Well, how do you stand in a synagogue and how do you pray?" And it was it was wonderful, and also, well, you know, when you have extras in Czechoslovakia, then they didn't give them lunch, so the, the people would come with like bags of their lunch, which b- b- broke my heart. <laughs> so I would, you know, give them our food which we never had vegetables. We had to send to London or France or Italy to get vegetables because, you know, their food diet was like hot chocolate. I loved it, of course, bread and butter and hot chocolate in the morning with whipped cream on it. Those are my
3: kids. (laughs) Yes. I was in heaven.
4: And I wanted to be thinner, but, well, and every day I would, not every day, but every few days I would bring in pasties, you know, with that delicious dough and the meat inside. And I we'd always have the most delicious teas, and I'd bring in those cream, uh, like donuts shaped like a hot dog from Wimpy's, and you know, eat this delicious cream with the donuts. Oh my God. It was so good. You had a good time. And they it was very sweet because the whole crew wrote a letter. That's one of my prized possessions, I must say. And they wrote this letter to the newspapers. And it said that, you know, Miss Trisand, something like Miss Trisand never raises her voice and has a smile for us every day. And it's like not the stories we've heard about her. And no newspaper would publish it. <laughs> but it figures, it's like Hillary Clinton.
3: As you said, the upside of that experience with Yentl was working in a culture where the power of women was just accepted. And I'm I'm crestfallen to say the least about what happened here. Not just because this guy won, but I really do think misogyny and
4: well, the in rejection 1984, of women in power. I did get some sort of award from Women in Film directing Yentl, and a lot of my speech was about women against women because the reviews of Yentl from women were vicious. You know, in other words, they didn't even talk about this celebration of womanhood, that a woman could not only, you know, make dinner and have babies, but she could have an intellect. She could want to study, be something more than... Do what men do. Huh?
3: Do what men do.
4: Do what men do, just equality, you know? So to read a review that said her, she wore a design, in the New York Times, she wore a designer yarmulke. Now everything, every piece of clothing in that movie was authentic. That same year, there was the film directed by Ingmar Bergman, Fanny and Alexander. They wore the same yarmulke, but nobody attacked that film. I love detail. So I would, you know, for years, I would do research about Polish Jews, about these Jews, that Jews, everything, the YIVO Institute in New York, um, uh, talking to scholars, studying Talmud, uh, just to bring that. Because I do believe that when you study like that and do the research, you don't have to act that. It's like the camera picks up the truth, even just behind your eyes, in the sound of your voice, whatever it is. Mine, you know, I had this wonderful uh, shot, I thought, as it cuts from a chicken coop to me sitting behind the bars up, separated from the men in a shul. And that shot was attacked by this woman critic. Janet Maslin, her name was. Now, she could attack my lip-sync, could that's true. I'm a terrible lip-synker. I can't do it because... When I did movies like Funny Girl or Hello, Dolly, you know, they record the soundtrack three months before you shoot. And I have to be in the moment as an actor. I don't know how I'm going to feel when I actually perform it. So that's why when I did the movie uh, Star is Born, it's all real. It's all, um, I had a You do not want to replicate. I did not want, I needed to be free to be in the moment. So we recorded on the spot. What do you call that? Live. It was all live. And then what I would do is, um, because I had final cut on that movie, I could control those things. Um, we would shoot the close-ups first, so where the performance really counted. And then I would just choose it right on the spot. Okay, I think. And I would do about one to four takes. You know, all these stories about me, like I do right. millions of takes. Most of them are false. And so let's say I would take take three, you know. And then... Move the cameras back to do the wider shots and match to that. And match take. because you didn't have to see me close, you know, not doing the lip sync good.
3: I did a documentary film about Can. It's ostensibly about Can and Ryan Gosling. Oh, yeah. We corner him at a at a hotel yeah, yeah, here. Yeah, I think
4: I saw it. Yeah, and
3: Jimmy Toback and I did this thing called Seduced and Abandoned, and we get Gosling at the Beverly Hills Hotel or the Bel Air Hotel, I yeah. should say. Anyway, long story short is, he has this beautiful explication of how agonizing it is to shoot films, and just in that kind of Arthur Murray, by numbers way we have to shoot, a well, match to this and yeah. match to this. Yeah, 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 It can't be fresh, and it's painful.
4: No, and that's why I love long takes, because I think I'm from the theater, and we had to do a whole show, right? So I don't like pieces. I mean, you, I, the fun of directing to me is designing the shot, the camera, accommodating the actors. So the actors, there's a lot of scenes in Yentl that you can see like this. They're all in one move, practically. In other words, we come in through a door, and I'm in, in the foreground, let's say, but he who's following me, the, my lead actor, uh, who was Mandy Patinkin at mm-hmm. the time, and he still is, <laughs> but, um, you know, we see him standing there, and then he comes forward, And I sit down, he becomes, he's standing up, but the camera never moved. But you see everything. Then the camera moves as we're together, but it doesn't cut. And then he has, you know, when when he leaves me, you see him go out the door, he slams the door, and the camera moves in a little bit as I'm thinking about it. That's the scene. But it's all, what's fun about that is that we're all on our toes. You can't make a mistake. In most of these shots that I do that, there's no coverage. Like Woody. Huh? Oh, is that right? Woody
3: and Scorsese, the the greatest films, there's very little coverage. The actors play the scene in the frame. They really play it. That's right. Now, Now, in the time that you made films, the many years you've made films, successful acting and not directing, successful as a director and producer and all those things, were there people that you wanted to work with with the people you sat there and said, God, I'd love to make a film with that person? Because you've been in such a privileged place and had all these people available to you. Was there a director that you dreamed of working with that you didn't get to work with?
4: Well, Ingmar Bergman is a, a person that contacted me to do a remake of The Merry Widow. And I was so excited, you know, and I came to um, Sweden and we embraced, and it was this wonderful embrace you know I mean he I can't explain what that what that's like it was just he he sort of understood me and I understood him without any words and the first act of that screenplay was fantastic I mean very bawdy uh kind of shocking I loved it you know So uh, then, and I have letters now. I I forget things until I have to go into my archives and look at this stuff. Letters from him and notes that I wrote back to him talking about this film. And what happened? The second act. You know, he says, we're going to be collaborators. And the second act was not very good, I thought. It was like, like you ever see Amadeus? I'm sure you did. Sure. The first act was extraordinary to me in the movie and the second act was, I don't know, just s- somehow repetitious. It It didn't go far enough in the story, you know? And that's the way I felt about this. And all of a sudden, it was gone. The collaboration was over. We never made the film. And I couldn't quite believe it. I mean... The fact that I didn't like certain things in the second
3: act—that he liked.
4: Well, he never defended it. It was like you don't think that's right, and so. But I would have loved to work with Bertolucci and Scorsese. You know what? I did. I realize this now in looking back at my life. I turned down Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. I turned down a lot of films actually, because sure. I was lazy. I'm basically. I'm, I'm a dichotomy here, a dichotomy. Lazy and um, I don't know what the word is. Uh, restless. Restless, maybe, yeah. Like wanting to create. If and we then did a I, soap
3: I, about you, it would be called The Lazy and the Restless. What right. do I mean, you have? I'm you, joking.
4: Oh, no, that's a Rather very than good the title. The,
3: the lazy no, and the yeah, restless yeah, yeah, would be yeah, your yeah, daytime. Yeah, drama. exactly,
4: exactly. I love to take a vacation and do nothing. I like to have no appointments. I think, that,
3: I think that's a condition in my mind of people who have tremendous—not so much financial success, but creative success. I mean, there's a famous actress who I won't name.
4: Wait, you know what? Do you want to take a sip of soup on your? Bring her I, her soup. Do you want soup too?
3: I'll, I'll have a soup. I mean, we who can, might as to say no.
4: Well, I mean, this is a—I'm Irish. It's bad
3: right? luck to say no to soup. Is that right? In Ireland? Oh, dear. I just made that up.
4: Oh, just put that over here. Oh, see I just brought this uh table from but, the back. Oh, that's good. And we need another table maybe over here sure, because this is them. miso soup. Don't worry about me. I'm great. I mean, in other words, people know we eat. Right. Right? So if they hear a sound no It's okay. Good, 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 good. Cuz I always like we'll to cut eat. I'm not eating. Oh, really? No you no you won't. Mm. That is delicious, isn't it? And healthy. Um What were we talking about?
3: Restless uh, and lazy. When I would talk to McCartney about the Beatles, he'd say to me, it was hard work. Later on, when they gain creative control of their material, and it's like anybody. Then they take a year to do another album. But in the (laughs) beginning, they really worked like dogs, you know? I think you're right. And for you, I'm wondering, in the beginning, Mm -hmm. when you do Broadway, are you out there and you're just so pumped and excited and you're young and everyone's glorifying you and loving what you're putting out there. And you really love it. Are you sitting there going, I don't want to do this show eight times a week. Like what happened to you in the
4: beginning? Were you excited and game in in the, in the beginning? I wanted to prove myself. I wanted to prove to my mother that I could be a success. You know, it comes from that. It's like really deep. It's deep and quiet. It's not loud, by the way, it's not what makes Sammy run. It's quiet. It really is. Um, But again, you can feel that passion. You can feel that need to be seen somehow. Because I wasn't seen much by my... I I lost my father.
3: How old were you when your dad passed away?
4: 15 months. But my mother said that after he died, I would climb up on the window waiting for him to come home. Because I used to do that, I guess, as a baby, and wait for him and he would come home. And... In a sense, I've idolized my father because he was a PhD. He was a teacher, which I so respect, teachers. And he wrote poems, and he was artistic, and he was a, an athlete as well as a, a debater, you know, and he, and he was in part of French dramatics and English literature. And I didn't read his thesis Till many years later, because as an actress, when I was 16, I was fascinated by Eleanor Dusa and um, Sarah Bernhardt, wanting to be an actress. And my father's books were tied up in the basement of our Brooklyn apartment. Mark Twain, Charles Dickens, all the great novels. I read, uh, what do you call it, Nancy Drew Mysteries. I read movie magazines, you know, and dreamed that someday... Maybe I could be famous.
3: Did you have that dream then, when you were oh, young? Yeah.
4: I would have my pint of coffee ice cream, briers, and sit in my bed and dream. Go to the movies sometimes on a Saturday afternoon, the Loewy's Kings, where they had the greatest ice cream. <laughs> and we also... <laughs> Well, yeah. It no, was... you,
3: you, you're like me. Somebody will say, what was the best part of the summer? I'd say, well, there's this restaurant that has the mm-hmm. best coffee ice cream with chocolate-covered hazelnuts in it. But mm-hmm. watching who in the, on screen, if to the extent you want to say or recall, somebody you'd watch movies and go, yeah, that's it. i want to do something like that. Not Doris Day. I mean, who no, was No, somebody... it was,
4: well, I loved Marjorie Morningstar because I knew the summer places in... Where I was sent to camp in the Catskills, or my mother and stepfather, when they came to visit me, I didn't know my mother was married, and I said, "I'm going home from here."
3: What do you mean you didn't know your mother got married? She never told me. So he was a boyfriend for a while. I guess he was around.
4: No, I never met him before. But when I insisted, see, I was as I was a strong kid, so my mother came to visit me with this stranger. And I said, I'm going home. I'm not staying here another day longer. So we have to pack me up. I think I was seven and a half, maybe.
3: So for a long time of your youth, you were raised by him. He was on the scene. Oh, yeah. When or you I go was, home, then he's in your life. He's
4: in my life, this stranger.
3: How did he handle you? Didn't like me. He didn't like you, why?
4: Because you we weren't quiet, because you had an went, opinion? That's exactly
3: right. Was the connection with him, such as it was... Because the connection with your mother also was a bit thinner than you might have liked compared to your feelings for your father. I grew up in a house where my dad was my idol.
4: Mm. I
3: idolized my dad. And mm. my mom, my older sister and I, we were her lieutenants. Chors, chores, chores. Mm-hmm. And your mom didn't push him or cajole him or try to get him to... Never. Your, your relationship with your mom was a little less than it was your feeling toward your father. Well... Or were you head over heels in love with your mother?
4: No, 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 no. I, I, I felt that she didn't know me. She didn't know.
3: But could she? I don't think my mother knows me either, but I've seen now in my life she couldn't. She wasn't capable. My mother never said to me, my mother's alive, and, she, mm. and I wrote this in my book, she never once said to me, what's it like to be you when you get up there and do that? Mm-hmm. What do you enjoy But to understand me? And, to, and I'm her son, I'm her oldest son. And where was the conversation about what I go through in my life and my career? My mother never... There's nothing
4: about that. My mother's love was shown through food. She would bring me, when I was a young actress, you know, and I moved away from home when I was 16, from Brooklyn to New York. Got an apartment right next 16. to me. 16? 16. I graduated high school at... Uh, Sixteen Erasmus. Erasmus, yeah. I graduated in three and a half years, so I could I doubled my science and math, which I loved. I loved those subjects.
3: You were desperate to get out of Brooklyn.
4: I was desperate to be an actress, to get away from real life. Not a singer, an actress. A- an actress, oh yeah. And my my singing was when I was five and six and seven on the stoop in Brooklyn with the girls, you know, singing and harmonizing. That was my singing. But my love was wanting to be an actress. And so that's when I went to the the library, the 42nd Street Library, and read the plays of these great actresses, you know. And I wanted to be a classical actress. So part of me still feels like a failure. You know, when I wanted to do, I wanted to play, after I was well-known, I wanted to play the two Cleopatras, the one... Uh, Caesar and Cleopatra. And, um, and Cleopatra. Antony and Cleopatra, right. right? So one is a child, 14 years old, who I thought it should be Orson Welles or Marlon Brando, fat. You know, and then I would be even little, Well-fed, let's say. Well-fed, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and hiding, you know, from this man. And then play the woman, Cleopatra. And the television stations, I wanted to do it on TV. They said, well, is it going to be a musical? I mean, you're going to add music? It's like they can't see that you could do both. I mean, though, you have to do the music with the, you know, absolutely uh, awful feeling. I wanted to play Romeo and Juliet, and I got to do it finally for Lee Strasberg at the studio. And it's one of my... I can't find the letter that they wrote me to... Well, that's a whole long story, but... uh,
3: To invite you to join the studio?
4: Yeah, but when I first auditioned for the studio, I was 15. And I was doing it with another guy who asked me to just be in it, but they wrote me a letter to say, do your own audition. And then when I did, they found out I was 15. And they said, come back when you're, you know, 18. It's probably a nice way of saying no, but... Um so that's why it was terrible when I was in Bro- on Broadway. I wrote on my <clears throat> playbill, I am not a member of the Actor Studio because all the actors who were d- would say a member of the actor's Studio and right. I was pissed off at right. them, you know. Um but that was interesting. I did some of my best work then when I was 15 and 16 and I played Medea, you know, and did that great aria after she killed her kids and you know, she says a line like, you know, something about this wound in the middle of myself. What a brilliant line. I mean, I am a woman, you know, with this wound in the middle of myself. Um, I was good then. And so, you're,
3: so you're saying this wound in the middle of myself at the actor's studio. Then, no, that
4: was that was for... Um, just I did it in class, that scene from Medea.
3: Where was your class?
4: You know what I would do then? I would... Um, I had another name, so I, I wanted—I didn't want to miss anything. So I went to two different acting classes and gave a different name in one. And then I used to to make money. You got $4.05, it was, to be an usher in the theater. So I would love to go see the plays, but in a sense I didn't have enough money to see all the plays, so I, I became an usher in the theater so I could see the play. But meanwhile, I was 16, 17, that kind of age, I knew that I would be famous because I would hide my head so they wouldn't see me, my face showing them to their seats. Because I thought, you know, when I become famous, they're going to recognize me as the girl who showed them to their seats. So how do you figure that? that That's something I can't explain.
3: You, you, you really, there's a part of you that knew you yeah. would end up doing what you did? Mm-hmm. Me, and I, I
4: don't, you know, and my mother didn't believe in me. She's, she kept telling me, do what your father did, become a teacher, you get, you know, you get time off, for, you get vacations, free vacations, summers Snap off. Snap out of it. Yeah, learn to type. <laughs> and that's when I let my nails grow long. So I couldn't type. Uh, believe me, I wish I could type now. I have to dictate everything right, 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 right. into a All those things I wish I'd learned. <laughs> French, typing, <laughs> yeah. cooking. That's right.
3: No, but with, with your mother, did yeah. she eventually come around? I mean, how could she not come around with everything you've done?
4: I think I was really just trying to prove to her that I, I could be famous. By the way, as soon as I became famous, I didn't like it. I don't like fame I don't like stardom. I only like the work, the creative work. That's all I like.
3: That's Streisand singing Lasha Kyo Pianga, normally more of the domain of the world's great opera singers like Rene Fleming. Fleming told me that she tried and struck out on two other genres before she landed on opera.
1: Had I grown up in New York City, the singer-songwriter thing might have opened. Doors might have opened. I mean, I sang on television in high school, winning some talent show, playing a song that I wrote. Then I tried to pursue jazz then. And that didn't work, despite the fact that Eastman had a phenomenal jazz department. I just couldn't get in.
3: She's about to mix it up again. Her Broadway debut is set for next spring in a revival of Carousel. Take a listen to the rest of Renee Fleming's story on heresthething.org.
1: Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint.
2: at purdueglobal.edu.
0: Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh?
2: A Redwood Forest would be cool. Ski slopes!
0: Wait! Did we just invent California?
2: Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.
3: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. With no formal voice training... And no money to kickstart a career, Streisand relied on raw talent to build herself up and the wiles of a man who happened to hear her at a small Greenwich Village club called the Bonsoir. Marty Ehrlichman was a music manager and almost as young and hungry as Barbara herself. He used his slim Rolodex and razor sharp PR instincts to help build Barbara's image into what it is today.
4: I met Marty at the Bonsoir when he came one night. I was 19, and he saw me as the first act, the opening act, and said, if you ever need me, kid. I was, I was kept over at the Bonsoir many times, but then I couldn't get a job. Finally, I got a job, and they were paying me something like $75 a week or $100 a week, $100 a week, but I could eat, you know. So if people wanted me to sit down, I would order a baked potato, sour cream and chives, and yeah. butter. So, but I couldn't make a living. I really needed more. So I called Marty and I said, you know, is there any way you could get me $150 a week? Marty told me many years later that he actually paid the $50 because they wouldn't go for the, the, the raise. You loved him. That's why he's such a great person, great soul. He invested soul. in you. He invested in me. Yeah.
3: You've been with him now for how long? It's like
4: well, we separated for a while, for a few years. Why? He didn't get along with um, the man in my life at the time was John Peters.
3: I've heard the story before.
4: Yeah, something like that. <laughs> but then, believe me, we got back as soon as I could. So that period is over fifty years. But if you Take out the. What does he do for
3: you now? What does he provide for you? And what does he provide for you now? You trust him?
4: Everything. He reads scripts, you know, and he's my full on manager. Today is his birthday, by the way. He's 88 years old.
3: Happy birthday, Marty Ehrlichman. Mm -hmm. I was watching these, um, you know, not just old Cavett shows where uh, famous actors would come on. Is it a spring roll? Is it meat?
4: Vegetarian. I think this one is vegetarian. This the, the, or are you a vegetarian?
3: Well, I don't I don't need beef. Is
4: there eat the light one, yeah. I think it's chicken. Is it? Isn't that good? Mm, yeah.
3: I remember I was sitting in your apartment years ago.
4: I got very hungry when I work.
3: And sis Corman <laughs> was there. Oh god, yeah. And you were gonna do Prince of Tides. and mm-hmm. I came to meet with
4: you. Hmm, I remember. To do I the movie The, the Prince sat. of Tides.
3: And you're Woman who took care of your apartment came in and you said, uh, you said, yeah, I'll eat a little something. I could eat a little something. I could eat a little something. And she would bring us some crudité or crackers or whatever, some spreads. (laughs) And you looked at me and you said, oh, God, I, I gotta, you know. I'm going to get ready to do a movie, and I love to eat. And I said to you, I go, if we do this movie together, I'm going to hire us a chef. I'll pay for it. And this chef will come down, and we're going to eat whatever the fuck we
4: want to eat. That's why I loved you, see? And you look, i felt, never forget, you look wow. at me, and you're like, wow. We could be friends. I always just
3: forget about, you know, <laughs> driving ourselves crazy with all this. Shit. Let's go down and make the movie. Have a good, if we feel like eating, we eat. If we don't feel like eating, we don't eat. We right. don't have to go crazy. Oh, what a
4: great idea.
3: And... Then you cast, what's his name
4: in the movie? Uh, Nick.
3: I'm kidding, I'm teasing.
4: Yes, because he had to be a white-looking Southerner. You know what I mean? You're very New York. I love that movie. Did you? Oh, good.
3: Now, watching those old, you know, Cavett's and on comes Brando and on comes this one and that one from that generation of Belafonte when he was Mm -hmm, young and all mm -hmm, that civil rights mm -hmm. activism, were you active then as
4: well? Oh, yeah. I was supporting Bella Apsug for Congress in like 1970, 1970. I even supported Mayor Lindsay, who was a Republican, because I liked him. I liked the way he spoke. You know, I thought... He was a leader. He was a leader, and he was fair, and he was believed in justice, and I just liked him. He was also adorable-looking. Um, so, you know, it's like... You know what happened when I sang in Houston, by the way, before the storm? I invited the Bushes, President H.W. Bush, I mean, um, 41, and Barbara Bush to come to my concert, and they came. And I gave him socks because I heard he collects socks, and they came backstage, and she brought me a pin, and I gave her something, and they were just so lovely. Even now, I wrote them to see if they were okay. How's their house? And they said, we're fine. We're in Maine and this and that, you know. In other words, you know, he had dignity. He had great dignity. And she was an advocate for women's uh, rights. I like good people. That's why I can't quite understand what's happened to this country. And it all, it goes back to women too, women against women. Yesterday, I was watching Hillary being interviewed by somebody and the first question was so rude by the woman well how do you know that uh, the democrats even want you around when i f- when she was running there were three women who interviewed her as well and they were so the faces scrunched up you know on television going well so are you trustworthy or are you not trustworthy i mean they would like Shockingly rude attitudes. And I told her chief of staff, you know, I think you should be interviewed by men. They're going to be nicer to her than the women. 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump. Now, how do you figure that? I saw her on The View this morning, and I think I would have said, if he was in my space like that, I don't think you have to call him a creep but you could say you know you're going to get your own time they're going to they're going to ask you a question and would you like me to stand behind you in the shot i don't think so so mm-hmm. if you don't mind can you she just did that move that i, I would say to myself if
3: she did that to him i use mm-hmm. that phrase yeah. and append it to a lot of things if she had done that to him if she right. had said that about him right. so you sing at Clinton's inauguration. You're close to Clinton, the, the old Clinton years in mm-hmm. the 90s. They were great. And they, were great, God, I mean, they and, were great. And I have my criticisms of Clinton. I have my criticisms of him and his policy.
4: What, I, what did you criticize about his well, policy? I just think
3: peace is a quaint idea now. You never hear these people running for office talk about peace and a policy and a strategy to get us to peace. We're in a state of perpetual war. Mm-hmm. We spend Violence. trillions of dollars, and I mean trillions with a T that we don't have. That we don't i mean i am i i mm-hmm. am I make it very simple for myself. I mm-hmm. read, I have a copy, I carry it around in a folder of my favorite writings that I have, and mm. one of them is Eisenhower's farewell address and the coining the phrase the mm, military industrial co- complex send it to me and when he says, you know mm-hmm. uh, every missile that is fired." We lose this. And every bomb that we drop, we we cost us mm-hmm. this. And he mm-hmm. refers to this world in arms, Eisenhower. So no, Eisenhower, mm-hmm. the last man to be elected president by acclamation, a man who did not want the job. Mm-hmm. And everyone around him said, you won World War II. You got to run for this job. You got to do this. Mm-hmm. And uh, Eisenhower, the hood ornament of the American military machine, walks out the door and says, watch out for these people. He warned he the military about the
4: industri- military-industrial complex. Yeah,
3: he coined the phrase the military-industrial complex. Right. And he basically saying, watch w- out they for They make
4: these money from war. They have
3: too much power. And and we've lived, and it keeps getting progressively worse and worse and worse, where, and I don't think Clinton was, but Hillary Clinton voted for the war in Iraq. That it upset was the me.
4: one thing that really upset right.
3: me. That, that was almost a deal breaker for me. Almost. Yeah, you know?
4: But you have to remember this, because I've discussed this with her and um, President Clinton. She, at the time, thought that Bush would keep his word, Bush 43. Mm. And they were supposed to go to the UN. They were supposed to have weapons inspectors um, make sure that there was, you know, nothing there. That wasn't done. We had weapons inspectors, because I used to talk to Scott Ritter, who was a weapons inspector there for seven years, and he said there are no weapons left. And if there were any chemical weapons... They have a, f- a shelf life. They're, they don't work. That's what we saw. But they weren't even allowed to even complete anything. They certainly never went to the U- to the UN. And all of a sudden, you know, we're in a war.
3: Without picking someone mm-hmm. in a current menu of candidates, what do you think we need to run in 2020 to beat Trump? What kind of person do you think it's going to take? Forget about man or woman. It's going to be a person who... Does what or who says what?
4: Who says the truth? Truth is everything. I mean, that's what kills me. I love the truth. I love the power of the truth. You have to believe that person and you have to believe they stand for what American values are supposed to mean, not like in the Newt Gingrich way of whatever that is American values, but to be for justice, to be for diversity. To uh, be respectful. To accept change. Yeah.
3: To accept change. That the, in mm-hmm. New York, <clears throat> I'll never forget the Daily News. I mean, yes, this is a fact. I suppose when the when the census came out in twenty ten or two thousand, you know, every ten years, the, the Daily News put on the cover that white New Yorkers were now the plurality. That they were under fifty percent. That the city had now become fifty one percent, literally, black, Asian, Hispanic. So forth, mm-hmm. that white New Yorkers in all five boroughs represented less than fifty percent. And I thought, well, that may be true, but w- what are you promoting when you write that? And, and that's going to happen in this country. Mm-hmm. White privilege, as we understand it, and white mm-hmm. people. I'm not saying we're going to become Rhodesia, but mm-hmm. it's. it's uh, I think that people who accept change. What choice do you have but to accept change? That this. World we live in is going to become more and more diverse, you know, in terms of mm-hmm. people's sexual identity mm-hmm. and women in power and things like that. And I find that the, the Democrats—I mean, I'm very critical of them as well. The Democrats will say almost anything to get elected. I don't think so. Well, I, no, uh,
4: I, I think the Democrats. I think the Republicans
3: will say anything to get elected. There's a the difference. The Democrats yeah. almost anything, and the Republicans will say. No, the anything
4: Democrats to are too nice. That's what I, think I find. So? Yeah, they don't. I
3: always wanted to run because I'm not very nice, and I wanted to be the.
4: You'd probably be a hit.
3: The, I wanted to be the more two-fisted Democrat. <laughs> that's
4: what. That's what it should be. You have to say it like it is. I'm you have to be the to, tougher Democrat. You have to be tough. That's actually what I said when I first met Obama. I said we did a fundraiser for him, and it raised eleven million dollars that night. And um, I sat with him for, and I said, "Are you tough enough?" That was my first question to him. Of course I'm tough, you know. But, I mean, this is a terrible thing to say, but, okay, and I know it can't be done. But when Russia was suspected of invading our democracy, I thought to myself, why aren't they postponing the election? How do you have an election now when Russia is hacking us?
3: And don't we do it over? Huh? And don't we do it over? Yeah. Right.
4: That's what I How thought. How is this valid? And whenever I've said it to anybody, they go, you can't do that. Why not? Right. This it, first. it is weird. Huh?
3: It is weird I to mean, sit there and say the, 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 the result of the election is entirely false. But let it stand. Because to yeah, change yeah, it would yeah. be really, no. the country couldn't handle no, it.
4: No, I mean, look at the difference. I'm going to write an article actually about this next week about the difference For in Huffington. America. Right. Yeah, the difference in America, what it would be like if Hillary were president. Do you realize that women and girls could hold their head up high? She and Angela Merkel would be running the free world. Do you see the woman, you know, Wonder Woman movie? Uh. It was fantastic (laughs) because women were in charge. Women are nurturing and women can be tough and make decisions that are uh, based on compassion and uh, wisdom. You know, even in the Jewish religion, women, the Orthodox Jewish religion, which I am not, but men have to say certain prayers every day. But women have to say less prayers because they are closer to God, because they are creative. They they birth babies. They feed those babies. They nurture them afterwards. And that makes
3: them different. It does. My, my wife no. reminds me of that every day, actually.
4: Well, that's good. how
3: different women are <laughs> from men. Remember this. How more this. sainted women no, are than men. No,
4: but it is true. But I think what we're missing with Trump is compassion, kindness, respect, but I like what you said we're missing
3: honesty. Huh? What I, what I like as you said is that we're missing honesty, and honesty is everything. If honesty, we just be honest, we'll get through everything.
4: We, we can't understand the news. It was like a, he was a farce. He was a disrespectful womanizer. I'm still in shock. Huh? I'm I still am, in shock. But don't you see stress? Stress is causing me to eat, you know, more than I usually I'm gonna, as do. As soon as I
3: leave her, I'm going to go pull on the side of the road and go eat something. <laughs> get a hot dog. I'm going to drink something. Grilled <laughs> cheese sandwich or something. A grilled
4: cheese. Yeah, Would that be great? Cheese. Yeah, Um grilled And it's, you know, I found out that when you're stressed, you um, cortisol levels raise yes. in you. And cortisol uh, makes you gain weight. Yes. So I, I was on. A, I was away with some friends for a week. I didn't read a book. I, I played games, which I played to fall asleep at night because I'm after looking at TV and reading the news, I, I can't fall asleep. So You're I restless. have to play yeah. backgammon, you know, right. and gin. So, I mean, it was such an interesting thing for you who's an eater too. Every day we had bread and butter, you know. Uh, every day we ate pasta in Italy. Every day we had desserts with sugar. We gained nothing. Maybe two ounces, three ounces. Out. We just let it go.
3: Not having to wallow in them. I'll never forget Kathleen Turner. She said this on this show. She was one of my first guests.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And I said to you, you were married to your husband, Jay. You got divorces and you never got married again. I said, do you, do, do you miss that? Do you want to be with somebody? And she said, Alec, I put the key in the door of my apartment. And the thing that makes me most happy. Because I know that there's nobody on the other side of that door. Wow. I walk in. I can do whatever I want to do. I don't have to ask anybody's permission or t- blah, 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 I mean, she really was like happy to be single. And you, you don't like to be single. No. You don't.
4: But I was for a long time. But, no, I like looking forward to my husband coming home and, you know, waiting for him to, so we could eat together. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And he enjoys food, too. I mean, we just take trips up to Santa Barbara just to get an ice cream cone from McConnell's. My favorite flavor, Brazilian coffee, which they don't sell in pints in the market. You have to go there or... Like, now I can't have it in my freezer because I'll eat the whole pint. I just start with a little and a cone. Ah, Just, you know, while it's melting around the edges. And I'll just eat that part and just... No, it's gone.
3: To me, there's that familiar sound. I'll be watching the news... And it's like mm. ten o'clock at night. I'd be eating a, a mm-hmm. late night pint of mm-hmm. ice cream, and then all of a sudden, I would hear that unmistakable sound of the spoon scraping the bottom of the cane. Yeah, yeah. I go, "Oh my God, how did that happen?"
4: But how come you're thin? How did you lose weight?
3: I started losing sugar. Sugar was my nemesis. Just
4: took away sugar.
3: I, I, I'm pre-diabetic, and my numbers were tragic. And they mm. said to me, "You're going to start shooting." What
4: were your numbers? Uh,
3: over three hundred. And oh, they said, you're going, "And they said you're going to start having to shoot insulin if you yeah. don't get yeah. with this." Yeah. So I still. Uh, uh, do bad things every now and then, but nowhere near. I no. mean, I was somebody that ate. I was. I, I was. Truly, I can say this without uh, without hesitation. Mm. I was an ice cream addict. Mm. You know, graders having graders ice cream shipped you, to me But you, you, like have to
4: addict. look. One day when you're cheating, you have to try McConnell's. Do you like coffee ice cream? Or of course, I crave coffee ice cream. Okay, Love it's it. the greatest. I can't get Brazilian enough of it. Coffee. <laughs> They were so sweet, McConnell's, because when I did my last movie with Seth Rogen, I had to eat ice cream. So I said, I have to have the ice cream from Santa Barbara. But I had them try something that Will Wrights used to do that went out of business. They had chocolate covered, chocolate, that sounded so Brooklyn, chocolate covered, chocolate covered almonds in the coffee ice cream. So I asked them to make that flavor. Get yeah, but now them. people develop nut allergies, so yes. they hardly put nuts. Do you have
3: nut allergies? No, I then don't. What do we care about people with nut allergies? We don't have it. No, we
4: do care about them. Okay. But now they I just read they ships. discovered a, a drug that will take away nut allergies. <laughs> do you ever read the magazine called The Week? I love The Week. Yeah. And I read an article in there that talked about there's a drug now to take away nut allergies.
3: All right, my last question for you okay. is before I get into trouble. Because I want to take you to dinner and have that McConnell's waiting for you when I come back. Right now. I will. (laughs) And that is when you sing, you know, people hear your voice and they, that melts them. It really gets to them. You know, you're the greatest female vocalist of all time. Oh, you're so sweet. I don't know. There's other women who I love. Mm -hmm. I'm not dismissing them, but you're the greatest female vocalist ever. What a compliment. And, when you go into the studio when you go to record mm-hmm. i'm assuming there's a passion there's a connection there's a
4: soul i you... love recording because it's private and there it's just me and the music you know i could look like crap i don't have to dress up right. i don't have to put makeup on and it's just it's just the sound and the the musicians the 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 instruments and what i can hear and and say oh i could hear a string line here with a sound and i don't read music but i'll have to go you know it's eh, that that note eh, what is it i don't know but it's that chord that chord you know i mean it's just that's fun for me
3: does that singing make you happy that you can do that
4: um yeah it does I, I can hear things that I thought, oh shoot, I should have done that over. Or, Is that the right take? I mean, whatever. But no, I, I liked when, when we put out a new album and Sirius radio plays my songs 24 hours a day, and I happen to uh, have the radio on. I think that was good.
3: I want to say, I love you. I love you too. And you're the greatest. You're the greatest. The more
4: I live, the more I learn, the more I learn, the more I realize, the less I know each step I take, Papa, I've a voice. In. Each page I turn, Papa, I've a choice now. Each mile I travel only means the more I have to go. What's wrong with watching all?
0: If you can fly then so. With all there is, why settle for?
3: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.
0: Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh?
2: Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah!